Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Coolangatta podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. For the last two years, we've been journeying through Genesis as a community, delving into the origin stories and histories of our faith. In this series of Genesis, we step into the patriarchal families of Abraham and continue to see how both the promise of God is fulfilled, but also the brokenness of man. Ultimately, we see that even though we are the great promise breakers, he is the great promise keeper. We pray that this message is a blessing. Well, good morning, New Life Kulangato. It's always a pleasure to be here on a Sunday. You know, each week we gather as a community. And we gather to see what it is that God intends to say to us, how he intends to form us, what it is that he intends to do with his people, which is us. So we open up our scriptures and we prayerfully open our hearts and our minds to the Holy Spirit. And God does stunning and beautiful things. So it always excites me to be here and to be opening the word with you guys. On that note, if you have your Bibles, would you go ahead and open them up to the first book in there, Genesis. And we're going to go to chapter 37. Whilst you do that, if you have not met me before, my name is David Skembri, and I get the absolute pleasure of being one of the pastors here at New Life Kulangada. And we are currently on part three of a three-part series about Genesis. And I don't mean three-part like three-week. I mean three-part like three years. We've gone through Genesis rhythmically each year uh, to understand some of these stories that foundationalize the faith we have. Right? And so we've been asking questions. What does this opening book of the Bible say about who God is? What does it say about who we are? And what does it say about what we have been made, crafted, and called to be and do as we live our life today in a broken and hurting world, but also for forever in eternity in relationship with God? So it's been so exciting. And the best part is it's all been recorded. So as you go through your life in the future and you open Genesis and you decide to start reading it and you get stumped one day or you're interested or you want to know more, you can jump onto our website or a podcast app and you can find a sermon from your local church from here uh, that, that covers every major movement in the book. So it's just so exciting to be a part of it. But this part three has followed the descendants, the children, the grandchildren of Abraham. Abraham was where God kind of turned the, the, the page on this opening story of brokenness and said, now let me show you humanity what I do when I get involved. And he invites a person who is as broken and as wounded as any of us. And he says, hey, I have a plan to see the whole world become blessed. And by blessed, he means saved through the family, through the lineage, through a descendant of this person. And so we're following the story of, well, what do these family, what does this family learn about God? And the first thing we notice about this family is that they're not really the best of us. Uh, like, like the grandchild, Jacob, we, we preached him for the last few weeks. He has been scheming and stealing, conniving, ambitiously robbing his brother and anyone he really can to get ahead in life. So much so he gained uh, his actual name. I was going to say nickname. No, it was his name. And it literally means ankle grabber. Like, what a name, right? Ankle grabber. Someone who grabs the ankle of someone else, pulls them so that they can get ahead. In Australia, we call that tall poppy syndrome, but it doesn't make as good a name. So we'll keep him as Jacob. But there's this strange scene in this, uh, in, in this story that Scott went through last week that was brilliant. It's weird because you don't think about this happening, and yet most of us who call ourselves Christians have done it. It was a scene where Jacob wrestled with God. And at the end of this wrestle, at the end of this moment of difficulty and striving, 
God comes to Jacob and says, what is your name? What do people know you as? And he was like, Jacob, ankle grabber. You know? And God's like, nah, I don't want people to know you by the way you get yourself ahead, by the way you strive and scheme and are desperately needing to always prove and get ahead. I want people to know you by a different name. He says, how about this? You're going to be called Israel. And Israel literally translates to God prevails. It is God who wins at the end of the day. I want you and your children and everyone who ever calls himself a part of Israel to be known by the world as a people who know that at the end of the day, it's not their merit, their ability, their strength, their brilliance, but it is God alone who prevails through them. And so this week, we're actually following on in this story and looking at how at the story of one of his sons, He had uh, 12 sons and a daughter, and there's a lot more dysfunction, a lot more scheming, a lot more brokenness, and we're looking at the contrast today of how one of those sons stood out, and his name is Joseph. So if you have your Bibles, come with me to Genesis 37, verse 2. I'm going to be, for the interest of time, skipping a few verses, so I'm just going to let you know when I skip a verse, uh, and I'm going to encourage you to go home and read the chapter as a whole, because it is beautiful, and there are so many wonderful revelations about God in it. But let's dig in. Verse 2, it says, Joseph, a young man of 17, I skipped a bit. It says, this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, that is Joseph's dad, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made for him an ornate robe. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. I love that it's not like didn't. It's like they couldn't speak a kind word to him. They, they, they tried and they were like, I dislike you muchly. You know, they just couldn't say a nice thing to him. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hey, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream. And he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father actually rebuked him and said, What is this dream you've had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone off to graze the father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. Moving along to 17b, he said, So Joseph went after his brothers, and he found them near Dotham. Uh, but, but they saw him in a distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Like, before he could even say anything to make them dislike him, before he could do anything wrong at all, they saw him in the distance, and they said, oh, I'm going to kill that guy. You know, like, crazy brokenness. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him. 
and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we will see what comes of his dreams. Verse 26. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and they sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who then took him to Egypt. When, uh, verse 31, then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. And he recognized it. And he says, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Wow. This is the family lineage that God would go on to use to save and bless the world. Wow. Would you join with me in prayer? Father God, I thank you so much that you are loving, that you're in this room. That's not a tagline. That's a statement of faith, that you are in this room, that you have come this morning, and you always meet us, but you've come this morning to meet us again. And as we as a community turn towards you, We know that we will taste and we will see that you are good. We thank you, Lord, that you are a king and you are Lord and that all the kings in the world and all the superpowers in the world might rise up against you. God, they will never win. Lord, you always win. I pray today, Father, that you would stir our hearts to a renewed confidence in your name, that we might leave this place more trusting that you are who you say you are and more freely able to live the way you've called us to live. Jesus, I thank you for the blessing and the miracle of your grace. And in your mighty, mighty and beautiful name we pray. Amen. Have you ever had a dream or a vision or a plan that you've tried to do and within a few minutes, you know, it's gone entirely wrong. Like it's gone totally off track and you're totally lost to where you are. In 2021, uh, we had this brief break, a brief respite in border closures. And me and my housemates thought, well, let's take advantage of this. Lockdown for a year and a half, am I right? We're going for a drive. And so we went down to Sydney. We, we rented out a car, went down to Sydney, went down to Canberra, and, and we kind of just did some of the space between and around there. And there was one thing we had planned to do whilst we were out, which was there was a mountain range one of my housemates had seen and said, this is a stunning drive. We have to go. We have to go look at the lookouts and enjoy the beautiful creation God has made. And we were like, oh, wow, this sounds amazing. Like, you're really quite excited about this. Let's do it. So we get in that car and we start driving in. And you know how, like, the further you get from uh, civilized cities, uh, you end up getting, um, things end up drifting further and further apart. And so, you know, we see a a BP and we're like, oh, yeah, that's cool. There'll be another one up the road. And we we keep driving. And then we see another fuel station way further apart than we expected. But we're like, cool, there's another one. Good to know. You know, and then we keep driving, keep driving. We're in the mountains. And, you know, about 10 minutes later, uh, having driven past this wonderful petrol station, the guy driving looks and goes, oh, the petrol light's been on for a while. And we were like, 
Oh, you should have told us, man. There were petrol stations back there. So the smartest voice in the car um, said, well, how about we do a U-turn and go back to the petrol station before we go too far, and it stuffs us up entirely. And perhaps the dumbest person in the room said, well, what about we open Google Maps and see if there's a uh, petrol station up ahead, maybe? And so I open my map, I look, and sure enough, there's a town, just a... I say town, that is a lie. There is a cluster of buildings, just a few... A few uh, bits ahead, a few bit of the road ahead, and, and we went there and we said they, and the map said they had two petrol stations. And I thought, wow, 10 buildings and two of them are petrol stations. How lucky are we? And so, you know, being the optimistic, um, perhaps naive person I was, I said, no, we're not going backwards, we're going forwards. <laughs> and on we went. So we drove to this town, we took a park, and uh, we didn't really have to look hard to realize, having parked, that there were not, in fact, two petrol stations in this town. There were a grand total of zero petrol stations in this town. And now we had gone too far to go back. And uh, I had to make a decision, you see, it was my fault. And so I thought, what if? We just keep going forward. You know how those new cars, those new petrol gauges, they could be wrong. And so I said, let's go forwards, let's keep going, and maybe we stumble across someone selling petrol on the side of the road. I don't know. So we start driving. Um, you get strawberries, why not petrol? So we start driving, and um, on we go, and sure enough, we don't make it as far as I hoped, and within a few minutes, we were pulled over on the side of the road with absolutely no petrol in our car, calling NRMA with what limited signal we have, and waiting an hour for them to come just to put some petrol in our car. Lovely dude, it was a good time. We thought, okay, an hour's not that bad. We can still see our plan, our vision, our dream day of traveling through these mountains happen. And as the NRM guy finishes, he goes to get in his car, and he goes, guys, you can't leave. And we're like, sucks, thank you, that's so nice, we like you too. And he goes, no, buddy, your tire's flat. And we were like, oh my goodness, at first no petrol, now we're missing a tire. What is, God does not want us clearly to go here. And so... Suffice to say, the whole ordeal took about another four hours, getting taken to town, parking. I don't know why it took three hours to change a tire, but uh, it did. And uh, we ended up, by the other side of it, being so frustrated and irritable that we never did end up driving those mountains and seeing the sights we were so uh, told about. The whole day was gone because we refused to do a simple U-turn. Wow, I feel like an idiot. Friends, sometimes life, and sometimes our own stupidity, throws curveballs at us. And the vision that we have for our day, for our week, for our month, the vision that we have perhaps for this year or last year, the vision that we have for, 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 this, for our life, our career, our family, sometimes we wake up and realize, man, how have we drifted so far from it? For Joseph, he had a vision, a dream for how his life would pan out. It was an odd dream, a strange dream, but something about it, though it never says God gave it to him, Something about it in his heart resonated as a vision that he could believe and put his faith in. He had a vision that his family would bow before him. Now, I don't know about you guys. I'm a planner. If I were Joseph, I would sit there and be like, right, here's my three-step plan to achieving this. All right, step one, let's go. Um, stay close. You can't lead them if you're not in the room. Stick close to these fellows, right? Step one. Step two, what else are we going to do? How are we going to achieve this vision? Well, if they're going to come bowing down to me and they don't really like me right now, I'm going to either have to terrify them so they bow down or make friends with them really, really lots so they like me enough to bow down. So I've got to kind of work on that because we're pretty far off now. And step three, nice and simple, uh, don't get sold into slavery, sent off to Egypt, and uh, everyone who loves you thinks you're dead. Simple plan, right? Everyone in? We can do this. Except sometimes life takes turns, right? You make, you make your plans. You do everything you think you need to to achieve the vision. 
And then life takes turns. And we find ourselves further from the vision than we began. Friends, today my hope is that we may, like Abraham's family, learn to trust that God alone prevails. God alone wins. My hope is that we might, like Joseph, learn how to live like we believe that God alone prevails. And my hope for today is that we as a people might be a people who believe that when God prevails, when God wins, he wins in ways that are immeasurably more than we can ever dream or expect because that's who our God is. For Joseph, the story, it wasn't like he got sold into slavery and the story ends there. The story keeps going. And just a couple of chapters later, in Genesis chapter 39, verse 1, it says this. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of the Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. Verse 6b. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. So that's Potiphar's wife. And in verse 8, it says, But he refused. One day, he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants were inside. So she caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand, and he ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants back in. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. I feel so sorry for Joseph. Anyone else feel sorry for Joseph? First of all, they don't want him, and now they want him too much, right? Like, first of all, we have Joseph's family that want him gone so much. They're like, let's take a drastic step and murder the poor fella, right? And and now he's wanted so much by someone, like on the totally end of the spectrum. He's so desired by someone that she's like, let me throw away my marriage and all my love and ruin this guy's life just so that I can have him. Like, you must be so confused. The poor guy cannot catch a break. But what we see in this narrative, what we see in these stories, it's not so much the circumstances. It's not so much the strange highs and the, and the really bad lows he goes through. What we see and learn from here is the way Joseph responded to each moment. You see, the deep and beautiful teaching is that we can see that jo- Joseph knew where his help comes from. He knew at the end of the day who would prevail, whether the most powerful Egyptian's wife is accusing him and now the this powerful Egyptian can't stand him and doesn't like him, or, or whether his brothers or 12 of them get, or 11 of them gang up on him and, and kick him out. He knew in each and every moment that come what may, it is God who prevails. Come what may, God prevails. I wonder, who do we trust in this room to prevail? When our lives take unexpected turns, I just wonder, do you know that whatever comes, do you know that whatever comes, God's got you, he wins, no one can beat him, he's for you and he loves you? Maybe you do, maybe you're not sure. You know, we all have beliefs in a certain set of things, and we all have these beliefs we profess and these beliefs we hold deep in our heart. And life as we live seems to test and really be a great tester of what we actually believe, right? Because sometimes 
Well, because the way we react to things as they come reveals to us what we truly think, what we deeply believe. Let me give you, let me give you an example. Let's say you're a vegan, right? And you tell everyone, hey, I am a vegan, man. Don't do anything non-vegan around me because I am a vegan. And you just tell everyone this. You, you want to believe it. You mean it. But then when you're alone, you know, in your house, and there's a, a delicious rack of ribs in front of you, and you just dust them off because, man, that tastes good, right? That tells me that perhaps you don't believe in veganism more that you believe delicious food should be enjoyed, right? That tells me that because clearly in the moment, what you chose to do, what was more important to you, what you seemed to believe more, was that your taste buds were more important than your veganism. Amen. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Or perhaps you believe something absurd, like animals were underwater creatures and should live under the water. Something just absolutely crazy like that. And then when you build your first house, you build it on land. What am I going to think? I'm going to be like, clearly you don't think we're meant to live underwater because you build your house on land. What we do, how we live, how we respond to what we have and to what comes our way, reveals to us and the people around us what we truly believe. And there's a word for when our actions align with our beliefs. And it's, it's one of those big parent words, one of those big teacher words, one of those big Bible words. And it's the word integrity. And at the end of the day, what we have to understand is that we're all always integrous to our deepest beliefs. The problem is, is that our deepest beliefs don't always line up with the beliefs we want to have and the beliefs we tell other people we have. And this is the problem that we, we face the highest form of integrity is not saying, I feel like this, therefore I'm going to do it. The highest form of integrity is being true to the person you want to be, even when you don't feel very much like that person. So sometimes I get up in the morning, and I'm struggling to believe in God, right? Like, we all know what that feels like. You know, you wake up, and you've gotten knocked about for a few days. Your heart's a little bit off it. You're feeling tired. You're feeling worn out. You've prayed and prayed, and you just feel like the room's empty. And you get up, and you're like, I don't even know if I believe this right now. Right? And then I think, you know what? But I choose to believe it, because I know what I've seen in my life, because I know the testimonies I've heard, because I know the testimonies I've experienced. So I don't really feel like it right now. But I will act in accordance with the person I want to be. I will act in accordance with what I choose to believe. Not with how I feel, but with what I choose to believe. And so I'll get up, I'll read my Bible, I will pray, I will go to small group, I will hang out with the people who remind me and encourage me that my Jesus, that my God is a beautiful God, one I can trust and one who is good. This is integrity. It is choosing to align our actions, choosing to align the way we live to the beliefs we profess and the beliefs we want to have. You know, in life's highs and lows, as we react to everything that comes, we discover what we most deeply believe. Ultimately, ultimately, we're always acting, always doing things that reveal our deepest beliefs. My friends, today I wonder whether we can see what our deepest beliefs are by the way we have reacted to what's come our way, right? As Christians, we profess that we believe God is good, right? Yeah? We profess that God is good. We understand that he knows more than we know. We believe his way is better than our way. 
And so we spend our lives learning how to turn from our broken and small-minded ways to trust God and his beautiful and his good ways. That's all we're doing. But when we don't do this, when we don't live like this, we're actually living unfaithfully to our faith. We are living without integrity to this thing we're professing we believe. And this doesn't mean that we're people without integrity when we fail. It's not saying that we're people without integrity when we're learning things. And it doesn't mean we're a people without integrity when we're slow to progress. But what it means is that if God's ways are better than our own, and if that's what we believe as Christians, which it is, right? It is what we believe. Then when we're not delighting in God's ways, but we're delighting in a different way like it's better, when we are choosing to spend our time and our energy and our effort in things that God has asked us not to do, when we're actually willfully enjoying choosing and ignoring God, uh, things that he's told us to avoid, then we're actually living in a way that's inconsistent with the belief we're professing. And this is to live without integrity. And this is where Joseph comes in, right? There are collections of circumstances all throughout life where integrity to God is hard. I actually think integrity to God is probably the hardest thing you could have integrity to because he's all-consuming. It's not like you just don't eat meat and you've done it, right? Or everything else vegans don't eat. Like this is all-consuming in every single way. And, you know, we see in Joseph's life just how hard it was. For Joseph, he had to choose integrity when it meant he's going to be hated by his brothers. He had to choose integrity when his own brothers didn't choose integrity and it came at the expense of him. He had to choose integrity when he had what somebody else wanted and they wanted him and he knew if he went with them, he would probably get elevated, but it was wrong. And so he said no. And he had to choose integrity when season after season after season, in spite of him doing the right thing, everything kept going wrong. Everything kept going wrong, and he had to resist the temptation that wooing beckons to defeatism, to victimization, to frustration at God, or disenchantment with God's way as a whole. Friends, in this room, when, when life gets hard, who, who do we go to, right? Who do we go to? Do we get thick skin, hard hearts? Are we committed to becoming self-made no matter the cost? I will prevail for myself. Or do we walk in such a way that shows that I truly do believe that it is God who prevails in my life? You know, the reason I believe that Joseph is the final major character in the book of Genesis is because he's the first person in the book of Genesis post-sin who understands at the end of the day, and particularly of the storyline of Abraham's family, who understands at the end of the day It's not his ability to scheme, and it's not his ability to achieve, even when what he's trying to achieve is what he thinks God wants for him. It's his ability to trust that God is good, and God has got him, and God doesn't fail. At the end of the day, come what may, God always prevails. I would rather be known as an Israel as one who believes that it's their God who prevails. And I wonder if we each reflect on our stories of our recent disappointments, in moments where life has robbed us of control or people have taken that applause, that popularity, that promotion we wanted. How did we respond? Did we respond with the, hey, no, 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 it's God who prevails and I know he has me and I trust him. Or by the way we responded, do we learn that perhaps we actually have a wrestle ahead of us, a deeper belief that we need to face? So we need to make decisions as a people and surround ourselves by encouragers, scripture, prayer, uh, truthful Christians who are earnest and integrous. And then do we have to actually really begin to face that sinful nature that says, hey, I want to believe that God is good, 
become the day where I have to face it. It's much easier for me to just bury God, go ahead and do it my way, and then come back to him later and pretend, you know, we're all good. And this isn't a beckons to laziness. It's not just saying, hey, well, when life comes, stop worrying about it. God will prevail. Just sit down and do nothing. It's not God saying, hey, I've called you to raise your family in a beautiful, godly way, and I'm going to use them for eternity-shaking purposes. And you go, well, God prevails, so I'm just going to sit around. God can feed them, and God can raise them, and God can teach them, and I'll just sit and watch TV. That's not what this is. It's actually an invitation to hope. A hope that come what may, God's got you. It's an invitation for us to align ourselves with God's way despite the results we're immediately confronted with. Despite whether we can make sense of it. Despite whether the people around us are actually getting the results we want by different means. It's about saying, no. If I am to trust that my God is a God who never fails, my God loves me, he sees me and he knows me, then I'm going to be a person who goes God's way when it doesn't make sense, and I'm going to watch the remarkable way God reveals his story, his vision, and his plan for me in beautiful, miraculous, and far bigger ways than I could have expected. And this is in the New Testament. This isn't just Joseph's story. This is a biblical theme. In the book of Philippians, uh, chapter 4, verse 12, Paul speaks, and he says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content, of being satisfied in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him. That is Jesus who gives me strength. This isn't saying if you're at the gym and you're struggling, in Jesus' name you can push 10 kilos more. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is this, when you're in the slums and struggling, when your health has taken the turn, when that person you've sown into and loved has rejected or rebelled against you, or when you're in the heights, in the penthouse suite, with money pouring out of your ears, when you're healthier than you've ever been, and everybody loves you and laughs at your jokes, in both circumstances, we actually find ourselves not in either of the circumstances, but in Jesus alone. That's who we are. We're a people who can walk anywhere in the world and not change, because we are tethered not to circumstance, but to God. It is that we are a people who believe God prevails. And I wonder, do you believe that come what may, God will prevail? For Joseph, his story continues, and, and it doesn't, it's not like he then gets, you know, this situation happened and then everything goes better. It actually gets worse for him again. In verse 19, it says, When his master heard the story his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. And Joseph's master, that's Potiphar, he took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, right? But check this, while, Jesus, while Joseph was in the prison, the Lord was with him, right? When Joseph was in the lowest place, when Joseph had descended so far, when Joseph was rotting in a prison cell, it wasn't because God had abandoned him. It wasn't because he had been so sinful God couldn't put up with him. It wasn't because it was life was too hard and God didn't know what to do with him. He didn't have the giftings. He wasn't strong enough. He wasn't faithful enough. He wasn't whatever. None of that, right? When he was in the midst of the prison cell, the Lord was with him there. And he showed him kindness. And he granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all of those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care. What a cruisy job, right? This guy won. Because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Friends, as God strips us back, as he strips back our ability and our privilege, our talents and our opportunities. 
to prevail by our own hands. He actually sets us up for visions, for outcomes that outweigh our wildest dreams. Think about it. Choosing integrity had left Joseph further from the vision than ever. By the world's standards, Joseph was not winning. He had a vision to rule that his family would come and bow down to him, right? Now, he had no family, had no influence. His connection to the Pharaoh and any opportunity to become big in Egypt was now stuffed because he's in prison, right? He didn't even have the freedom to do anything on his own. He is so far from that vision becoming true. And Joseph's descent appears to bring him further from the vision with every step he took, and every step he took was integrous. It was good. He wasn't sinning against God every single day. So how could Joseph have stayed true again and again? How does he do it, right? I mean, everyone in this room, if we're just honest for a minute, we get this. We get the problem. We get discouraged after just a few moments. When life hits us the wrong way, we think, well, I'm just going to avoid God for the day and I'm just going to scroll my Instagram reels or, or TikTok and see if that makes me happy instead. You know, oh, I'm not really feeling God today. I'm going to go buy myself an extra large coffee instead, right? Like we're always looking, we're always willing to kind of say, I'm a little bit discouraged and I'm not going to live with this integrity, with this action that reflects what I believe today. I'll just put it to the side and find it from somewhere else. So how did Joseph keep going? It was simple. He knew who God was. That's it. He knew who God was. See, Jacob was alive when his brother, sorry, when his uncle and his father wrestled. Joseph was alive when he saw uh, literally his uncle come to kill his brother and at the last minute relent and choose grace and forgiveness. Joseph was alive when he saw all of the brokenness and the flaws and the failures of scheming. And in the midst of that place, he saw that truly the best a person can do is just break things more unless they trust God and go God's way and let no matter what happens around us, see God win. You see, in the, bit, in the depths of this prison cell, God was just about to do more through Joseph uh, than he could have ever dreamt of because the story goes on. And from a prison cell, uh, and, and he's in prison for eight years. This, is a, he, this story begins at 17, right? He's 17 years old. And, the, and it doesn't land till he's 30. This isn't like a few months of trial. This is 13 years of trials that keep getting worse and worse and worse, right? 13 years. And the story goes on. And, and, and it says that after this, these eight years in prison, he's elevated up. He's elevated up. And he's given a place with the Pharaoh after interpreting a dream. And he's given a place as the second-hand person to the Pharaoh himself. Right? And then God gives him this vision of seven years of plenty, but following that, there would be seven years of immense drought, and all of the nations, not just Egypt, but all of the nations would struggle. And, and God actually beckons him with wisdom to respond to this in a way where he actually blesses the nations around them. Because the story goes, God leverages a prison cell and the experience of living in a high-ranking Egyptian household to propel Joseph to a position where he was literally second only to Pharaoh himself. Somehow he goes from family outcast to slave to convict, and that was the path God had for Joseph to go on so that he could become pretty much the most powerful and established and important figure far Pharaoh himself in the most powerful civilization in the world at that time. This wasn't a small promotion. This was a big deal. 
And in this moment, as that drought lingered and it begins wounding people, the foresight and the wisdom of God wound up drawing Joseph's family to Egypt, to Joseph, where they would come to him and through a series of events, God would reconcile this family together and they would see Joseph in a new light because of God. Not because, not because Joseph schemed and manipulated and convinced these people that he was worth liking and he, you know, they, they should be good to him because they like him. And not because he schemed and achieved terror in their souls so they could do nothing but bow down but because God is good and he is faithful and he is a God who reconciles families and brings people back together because when he has a vision for our lives he prevails and come what may God prevails and so here we see that dream from so many years ago was actually a vision from God Here we see that the reality of this vision, of this dream, far outweighed what he first thought. In the end, God showed that though it often made no sense, he was perpetually positioning Joseph for a greater vision than the one he had for himself, while simultaneously stripping Joseph's ability to become self-made or achieve it himself. And by doing this, he could establish Joseph in a place far greater than Joseph would have ever sought to establish himself. All he wanted to do was boss his family around. But in the end, our faithfulness to God's way opens doors for him to use us in ways beyond our imagination. You see, Joseph's vision to rule was actually God's vision to save. Joseph's vision to rule was, in the end, God's vision to save. And one thing I notice is that Joseph's whole vision, though it appears at first self-centered and egotistical, a vision to rule a family, why would God be in that? It's so random. I feel like if I was in Joseph's position, I would have had similar dreams, to be honest, but I'm not sure if God would have been in them. You know, it's quite vain. And yet this dream, in the hands of someone who trusted God's ways, who knew that it was God who prevails, it was God who wins, one who knows God as a loving and kind God becomes so much more than just a power grab. It becomes an opportunity for God to use a simple human being to change a society, change the course of where everything in the world was leading and see people saved. In the end, Joseph's vision to rule was God's vision to save millions of people in a seven-year drought. And this is how God works. He does remarkable things through small acts, through small hands, through small visions, through small people like you and I who just say this, I don't have much, God. But what I have is yours. I don't have much, God. I can't achieve much. My visions are too small to do what you want to do. But I'm yours. And what God does isn't some nonsense, petty, prosperity gospel, red Ferrari nonsense. What he brings is is a substantial, tangible, eternity-shaking, meaningful reality to our lives that is worth far more to us than some guy's approval that we don't even care about. What God does when God moves is he brings meaning and life and he saves our souls from ourselves and he saves us from the situations that look to dominate and teach us awful cultures and ways of living. And then he sets us to become vessels of hope and healing in our families and in the world around us. Because the reality is when it comes to life and how it's all going to pan out, we actually aren't as smart as we try to convince ourselves we are, right? 
God is bigger and he's better than we expect. And I wonder today if come what may, if we could believe that God prevails in our lives and he prevails with outcomes that outweigh our imaginations, outcomes of unthinkably loving and meaningful, eternally valuable realities that we, that is you and that is me in this room may literally partake in God's purpose that beauty and life and redemption and forgiveness and liberty and restoration and value inherently offered to the souls of the people we know around us and to ourselves may abound in our lives and in our families' lives and in the communities around us' lives. You see, the reason Joseph's vision of rule was in the end a vision to save was because this is who our God is. It's a God who cares enough to save. And Joseph echoes forward to a Jesus who would walk through a similar but vastly more extreme suffering to save Joseph foreshadows someone who will come far in the future and would choose integrity all the days of his life, never lapsing, not even once. See, Joseph failed. Joseph didn't choose integrity all the time, right? But this man, Jesus, he would, he, he would succeed and he would press on and he would endure in love and healing and revelation of truth day in and day out, over and over again. And then he would be betrayed by one of his friends, abandoned by all the rest. He would be mocked. And the court system that's supposed to protect people would turn on him and be used and manipulated and corrupted that he would have no hope. But still, he was integrous. Still, he never sinned. And then they would abuse him and mock him and wound him and hurt him and ultimately hang him on a cross and he would die. And God says that that, that, that what's important to him is that he would leave the 99 and chase after the one. So what, what that means is that Jesus would have done all of that if you were the only person in this room. Because that's who God is. Because when God has a vision, when God has a plan, it's not that some weird egotistical thing would be achieved. My friends, it's that there would be salvation in your life and in your room and in your communities. It's that we may have hope that the end is not where we're at right now, but it has been written in stone that there would be life and there would be freedom and there would be restoration and there would be a healing, that our marriages would find new life, that our relationships with our kids would not be finished yet, that those bondages, those chains, those addictions, we don't know how to escape, those instant responses to aggression, anger or pushoverness and all of that too would all be dealt with, that we would be healed as a people and most importantly, we would be welcomed into the arms of a loving father, not as slaves and servants, but as sons and daughters. Like this is our hope, that in the end, God prevails over your sin and over mine, over all of our brokenness, over all of the wounds we face from broken people, over all of the setbacks and the lack of privilege we're born into, throughout any and everything we have to face in life, our God will, does, and is right now prevailing. And he invites you today to believe it and then live in a way that proclaims to this world that you believe it. Would you join with me as we pray? Lord God, I thank you so much that your love for us is here and present and tangible in this room. I thank you, God, that you have never failed. You're not going to start today. And in which you say you've got a plan, you've got a plan that will happen and it will finish and there will be life and an abundance of, of reconciliation, restoration and new life. I thank you that you have, like you gave Jacob, given each of us a new name 
that we are no longer sinful and broken and fallen, but in the name of Jesus, a name far better than any of our own, we have hope and we have liberty and we have freedom, the forgiveness of sins. We have a new identity for we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good things, for good works, which you prepared in advance that because of the great love with which you have for us, rich in mercy, my God, you have stepped into this room, stepped into these lives. And today you're reminding us that whatever we're facing right now, whatever this thing we're hitting, whatever defeatism and victimization, whatever frustration or just a feeling of giving up is facing us in this moment and in this room, you are not finished. You are not done and you will prevail. And I thank you that you're inviting us to trust you. And as we sit in this room and all eyes are closed and all heads are bowed in prayer, perhaps in this room you heard today of the love of Jesus in a fresh way. Perhaps in this room you've heard that our Jesus is a Jesus who did not just die that, you may, uh, that he may egotistically establish his name and, and you, know, you now need to obey forever, but he sees you and he loves you and he cares for you and he considered you worth suffering for. After living a perfect life, he said, I have had enough with the brokenness you're facing and I will intervene. Come and be known by my name. Come and know a new life. Come and know my friendship and my care. And if today in this room, you're actually hearing that for the first time and the Holy Spirit is moving in your life, I want to just give you an opportunity to respond. If that's you today, I'm just going to give some space. If it's you, raise your hand in the air just so that I, myself, and a member of my ministry team can see. And we can know that today you're making a decision to begin engaging a relationship with God who loves you immensely. With all eyes closed and all heads bowed. Come on. Come on. So good. Whether you made the decision today in your hearts or by putting your hand up or anything else, I want to invite you and everyone in the room who knows Jesus as as our Lord and Savior to pray a prayer after me. I'm just going to pray a line and ask you to repeat it, but not just say words, but to mean it. Father God, thank you that you love me, that your ways are good, and you're good to me. Thank you that you have prevailed over my sin and my failure. I love you. Thank you, Jesus. Your blood never fails. Help me to follow you. Fill me afresh with your spirit. And help me to walk with you all the days of my life. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you'd like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.